You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. My name is Ryan. Uh, I'm on staff here at the church. Uh, still have uh, not got the chance to meet tons of you in the room, so I'd love to continue to connect, say hi, uh, hear your story. Uh, I get the role of uh, kind of serving to help lead our staff here at Stonegate and also run our finance, operations, all that good stuff, and this morning to preach. So really excited about that and to dive into John 17. But before we do that, uh, two things I want to make you aware of. Uh, we just wrapped up our all-in risk series. So underneath your seats, each one of you got one of these commitment cards. I know last Sunday, the majority of you turned them in, but if you didn't or you wanted another week to pray about it, to talk about it as a family, we wanted you to uh, just have it in hand for this Sunday. And if you are ready, we'd love for you to fill it out. And when the offering plate comes by later on in the service, just go ahead and drop it in there and we'd love to get that from you. So we'll be doing that the next couple of weeks, continuing to collect those, uh, but just want to put that in front of you. Um, also, if you are new or you've never been to Stonegate or this is just your first time visiting, I just want to say an extra special welcome to you. I realize often what a big step it is to come check out a church. And so I just want you to know this is a place where we're so glad you're here and you're welcome here. And we really want you to feel loved and hear the good news of the gospel and would love to get more connected with you. So if you could fill out this visitor card. Promise won't sell your information to telemarketers or anything like that. Um, just go ahead and put it in. We'd love to grab a cup of coffee with you, let you know what's going on around the church and see how we could serve you as best as possible. So that's that. Um, so here's the truth. John 17 is a very dense, rich chapter. And we can't possibly get through every verse. That's not what we're going to try and do today. That'd be like uh, trying to empty out the Pacific Ocean with a five-gallon bucket. We just don't have that ability today. But what I really want us to do is look at one overarching theme that kind of unlocks John 17 for us. And what an incredible prayer that Jesus is praying, a prayer that uh, he's praying right before he goes to the cross. So it has such huge significance, and it's filled with so much weighty, great content. So I really want us to be able to look at it this morning. Um, this last week, I was actually in my devotions just in Exodus 33 and uh, just reflecting on the life of Moses for a bit. And as I was looking at Moses, Moses has this incredible uh, life. I mean, we've all look, read, heard about Moses. Moses is a prophet of God in the Old Testament, and God sends him into Egypt to free the Israelites. And he sends him in, and Moses is the prophet, speaks on behalf of God, and brings the Israelites out of slavery across the Red Sea, which is a form of baptism, initiation into being God's people, a new way of life, a new ethic, a new story, shall we say. And God leads them to Mount Sinai, and then he calls Moses up to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, the way God's people ought to live, what it looks like to reflect God to the surrounding world by being God's people. But here's the thing, um, just like you and I, the Israelites, they're pretty fickle. They're prone to wonder at moments and they get a little antsy. They wonder, where did Moses go? Where is God? Can we trust him? And they begin looking around at their neighbors. They look around at the rest of the community. They look around at other people and they see the way they live life and the way they do things and their values. And they say, well, that should be the same for us. They begin to be quite in the world, so to speak. And so what do they do? They melt down all their gold. They build a golden calf and they begin to worship it. And Moses comes down and he, I mean, just doesn't have his best day, if we're honest. He throws a bit of a temper tantrum. He loses it, breaks the tablets, destroys the golden calf, and God calls him back up graciously to Mount Sinai. And you can imagine that moment for Moses. He's got to feel somewhat discouraged, frustrated. God, I brought these people out of Egypt. God, I did all that you asked me to do. Even when I didn't feel equipped, I still leaned into the task that you had in front of me. I was willing to be your voice, and these people, these people just seem to be too hard. I'm just having one of those moments where I feel frustrated and tired and worn out. And God, I just want to know, do, do you care? I just need to know more who you are. And so Moses has a request for God. He says, I just need to see you. I need to see your face. I need to know you're real. I need to know who you are so that I can trust you. And what does God say? God says, no, no, because if you were to see me, if you were to see my face, you would surely die. That, that if you were to see what God the Father, the God of the universe was truly like, if you were to look upon my face, you would die. The grandeur, the majesty, the character, the quality, the reality of who God is, if you were to glimpse upon it, that surely you would die. 
So what I will do, I'll make a little bit of a bargain with you. You just hide in the cleft of this rock and I'll pass by and you can see my backside. And that's all Moses got. That's all God's people got throughout the Old Testament. And then we find ourselves with great pertinence in John 17 as Jesus picks up on some of those very themes. Let's read the first couple verses again with one another, starting in John 17, verse 1. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 587. We would love for you to take that with you as well. If you don't have a Bible, just our gift to you. And you also have the words up here and you can follow along. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. The hour has come. This is such an interesting phrase. If you've been following along, if you've been reading through the gospel of John, you'll know this is a big turning moment. This is a big change in the story because up to this point, Jesus has tried to remain somewhat in the shadows. He's been thrust at times into the spotlight and he's kind of walked away from it. He said, my hour's not come. This is a phrase he's used repeatedly and all of a sudden he's changing his tune. This is a climactic, pivotal moment in the life of Jesus. If you go back to John 2, what do you see in John 2? Jesus shows up at a party and he makes this incredible wine and he celebrates with everyone and everyone goes, there's something unique and extraordinary and special about this guy. Let's let the world know. And what does Jesus do? He goes, shh. Don't tell anyone. He even tells his mom, my hour has not come. Or John 9, once again, John 9, there's this blind guy and Jesus comes upon him and he heals him. And the blind guy, in his excitement that he can now see, runs and tells everyone, tells the religious leaders, tells the Pharisees, and wants to boldly proclaim who Jesus is. And Jesus says, my hour has not come. Ironic, though, that the one guy who could truly see Jesus for who he was, was the one who had no sight. And Jesus, all along, has been in some ways saying, my hour has not come. But that's changed. Jesus is on the very precipice of going to the cross. He realizes what's right in front of him. And now everything is set in motion. Things are about to be massively different. His hour has come. The hour has come for what, though? For him to be glorified. For him to be glorified. Now, this is a really interesting word. We don't often use the word glorify in our normal day-to-day -day language, do we? We don't go like, I'm not going to tell you guys, like, hey, go to work tomorrow and glorify your, your coworker, Ted. Hey, Ted, you make great spreadsheets. The way you uh, slam out those TPS reports is phenomenal. You're great at managing those meetings. I just want to glorify you in that. You don't do that. Or you don't do it with, hey, uh, Jimmy, those are great glasses. You got to go on. Your shirt's a little loud, but I absolutely love it. The sweater works, though. Just want to glorify you in that. That's one way of glorifying, though, right? It's a form of adoration. You're admiring something about someone, but that's not the way John uses glorify. He uses it in a completely different way that unlocks this entire passage for us. It'll come up here on the slide. This is what John wants us to see. Glory equals showing something for what it is. Showing something or someone for what it is. Jesus is saying, my hour has come. There's finally going to be the big reveal. If you guys want to know what God looks like, God in the flesh, you're finally going to see me. And the way you're going to see me is because I'm going to go to a cross, which is altogether a paradoxical and way, weird way for someone to be glorified. Right? Usually a bloody, embarrassing, brutal death is not a way for someone to be shown for who they truly are. But here's Jesus. He's saying, this is the very way. Me going to the cross, the work that I'm about to accomplish is the very means, it's the very mechanism in which people who will truly see who I am. It's the big reveal. Bit of a confession. I, I love um, kind of those makeover shows, transformation shows, whatever you call them, HGTV, all that good stuff. Anything that's in the realm of like, hey, this looks old, dilapidated, useless, run down. And then they have that big moment at the end where there's a transformation. You know, like the, the bus pulls away, move that bus, and then you see this sparkling eight-bedroom house with like four water slides. Love that. Or, I, I mean, I just love when you, they go to the old house and they restore it and they put it back together. And all of a sudden, something that seemed very ordinary and plain is revealed for what it now is. And you begin to see it in a whole new light. It's revealed and it's shown for what it is. It's a glorious moment. 
in high, uh, high school, <clears throat> I had a friend, JT, and JT was kind of a real thin guy, skater, probably about five, six, always wore just van shoes, had a chain link wallet. And we'd go down to the basketball course, just play with people all the time. And although he was five, six, JT could jump like a kangaroo, like a human kangaroo. So we would just have him hang out at half court, get him the ball, and he would go down the other side and just dunk the basketball with great authority. And people would just look and they'd be aghast and surprised and marveling because in that moment, JT's, he's, he's revealing himself and this skill, this ability that no one expected. And that's the thing about Jesus. If you've been paying attention, people have all sorts of perceptions and ideas and thoughts and theories about who Jesus really is. Isaiah actually tells us, Isaiah 53, you guys have to read this sometimes, it's incredible. Isaiah 53 actually tells us Jesus was quite ordinary and plain. If you were to look at him, you wouldn't give him a second thought. There was nothing altogether spectacular about him. He was quite plain looking. He was very ordinary. Jesus was a regular looking guy. Nothing in his appearance would cause you to esteem him. And what did that lead people to do? That often left people to get Jesus wrong. And what do I mean by get Jesus wrong? Not see his glory, not see the big reveal. The bus is pulling away and Jesus is being shown for who he truly is. I mean, up to this point, all throughout the gospel of John, all throughout the gospels, you'll see people having all sorts of conjectures and ideas about who, who Jesus is. What, is he the guy that hands out free lunches? That's great. See the guy that does free healthcare? He seems to be healing people and giving sight to people. That's great. Is he the guy that loves to debate and argue with the Pharisees? That's pretty cool because those guys get on our nerves. Like, who's this Jesus guy? Does he just have good pithy statements and ideas? But who is he? Who really is Jesus? And friends, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not much different than the people all throughout the Gospels. I miss Jesus on a very regular basis. I miss him fully being revealed for his power, for his splendor, for his might, and for his goodness. The reality that when I look at Jesus, do I see someone who is there to meet all of my deepest needs and desires, my hopes, my dreams, my, the, the, the deepest yearnings I have for significance? Do I look to Jesus? Do I see him lifted upon the cross and say, that is my portion? Jesus is being revealed and even in that moment, even in that moment, look at verse five. I'll read this with you guys one more time. Verse five. And now the Father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is not being caught off guard by any of this. As Jesus is going to the cross, as Jesus realizes that the wheels have been set in motion and the cross lays before him, none of this catches him off guard. He realizes that from eternity past, this has been the plan of salvation for the people of this world. And so he sets things in motion and Jesus begins to walk it out. But who are we talking about? Are we talking about a man who's just lived for 33 years? Absolutely not. Jesus is not having a personal crisis, but rather realizes the most foundational thing. Here's what we all need to know about Jesus. As Paul tells us in Colossians, this is the same God that hung the stars and the moon. This is the same God that spoke the universe into existence. This is the same God that sustains every breath that's in my lung and yours right now. That's the Jesus we're speaking of. We're speaking of King Jesus. And he's saying, it's time. It's time for me to emerge from the shadows, from lowly peasant to exalted Christ and King. <sighs> Father, glorify me. Show me for who I really am. And this reality, this reality found in the first five verses of Jesus being glorified, of Jesus being revealed, of shown for who he really is, is the bedrock for the rest of the requests Jesus makes in his prayer. And he now turns and Jesus begins to pray for his disciples and he also begins to pray for us. And all of these prayers, all of their answers is found in Jesus being shown for who he truly is. The first one, it's in verses 6 through 15, and it's actually two requests, and they're kind of tied up with one another. Verse 6 says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus is saying, God, these are, God the Father, these are your people, and you gave them to me. You called them out for salvation. You gave them eyes to see. You gave them a heart of flesh and took away their heart of stone. And they followed me and they've been able to interact with me and they see me for who I am. But I'm leaving. But I'm about to go. 
And these very people, these very people, my disciples who I love deeply, as I leave, they need something from you, God. And I'm going to pray it for them. And he prays it in verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Keep them in your name. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Once again, the Old Testament significance of this is a good Jewish person wouldn't even utter the name of God. And all of a sudden, Jesus is now praying this very intimate and personal thing. Keep them in your name, in the name that wouldn't even be spoken. He's drawn them into a deeper sense of communion and relationship where there used to be this curtain that separated God from his people because he was too holy and his glory couldn't be shown without people dying. That curtain is about to be torn and people are gonna be invited in to know God to say, this is, this is Yahweh. This is God, our dad. And he loves us and he's for us. So keep them in your name. It's this prayer of adoption as well. They're being brought into your family. These are your people, God the Father. You've chosen them. You've bought them by my work that I'm about to accomplish. And may you hold on to them as they walk through this world. Because I'm leaving this world, but they're going to remain. And what they need is they need to be kept in your name. They need to be kept in your name. That means our identity. That means when you and I think of ourselves and who, who we are and whom we belong to, we're reminded that we're adopted, loved children of God, that we've been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Just think of the Israelites once again, how they were so prone to wonder. I love that hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The Israelites, it didn't take long for them to forsake Yahweh and to come up with different narratives, different stories of significance and who they are and who they belong to. Didn't take long at all. And you know what? We're not any different. How long does it take you? How long does it take I, me before I begin to think of different things that will save me, different things that will bring me significance, Different things that I think might provide me the hope and security that I so desperately crave and want. What's your story? What's the story you're living in? What's the story that you believe? Is it if I get that promotion, then finally I'll have the security and comfort and peace that I want? If, it's, if that person or that relationship works out, then I'll never be alone again. If it's I get that promotion or that job, then finally I'll have the significance and stature that I need and deserve and crave. Or have you already thought about you're all that you could ever need to be and all that you could ever want to be because you're loved by God and that all the hope you could ever need is found in the cross of Christ and that you're more loved than you could ever imagine so much so that the God of the universe would know every hair on your head or lack thereof. What's your story? Are you kept in the name? Because Jesus realizes something. Jesus realizes that this life is a hard one. That's why actually in verse 15, he ties up this prayer to be kept in his name with his concern. He says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. But that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is looking and he's saying, man, as I see how life can often be exhausting and tiring and difficult, and some of you walk in this morning and you feel burdened and you feel worn out and you look at what your week was like and you just feel like what it would look like at work and how your kids just won't go to sleep and you're picking up Cheerios all over the floor all day, all night. And it, it, here's the thing. I, when I look at Stonegate, when I look at us as a church, I'm not worried about like people leaving the faith. I don't think there's gonna be like a mass apostasy where people are like, you know what? I'm just done with church. I'm done with God. And you're going to walk away from your faith. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters, he actually has this incredible insight that Satan would be just as satisfied with you going through the motions. You don't even have to leave church. You don't even have to keep doing good religious things. You don't even have to stop reading your Bible. Just don't care anymore. Just stop seeing Jesus for who he is. Just stop seeing Jesus in all his glory and all his power and his exaltation on the cross. Just leave those things and go through the motions. Get numb. Just check out. Satan's fine with that. 
Every single one of us, we walk in this room and there is a bent, there is a proclivity to find our salvation, our hope, and our restoration in something other than the revealed Jesus Christ. It's just true. In fact, the word world here, people can take this many different ways, but here's really what it means. This is what John's getting after because he uses it here in the Gospel of John, and then he also uses it in 1 John. In both places, he's using it the same way. He's using it to give the connotation of the collective rebellion against the rule and reign of God. The collective rebellion against the rule and reign of God. And that's not an out there thing. That's not like, hey, we can just build a bunch of walls and fortify ourselves from the rest of the world out there and then none of the sin will get in, in, in us or on us. But the problem is it's, it's, it's part of who we are. It's part of our very nature. We couldn't build a wall high enough to keep sin out. We couldn't separate ourselves enough to keep sin away because sin's not out there, it's in here. And my salvation project, my deepest hopes can never start in here. They have to start by going up, by looking to the God of the universe, by looking to Jesus hung on a tree. That's my only hope. I can't save myself, and neither can you. That's our temptation, though. The collective rebellion against the rule and reign of God that you and I, just like Adam and Eve, would look at God the Father and say, not your will be done, but my will be done. Not as it is in heaven, but as it is in my heaven. And this is just a bent, an inward bent towards selfishness and self-salvation. Where we begin to believe all sorts of lies. Where we are no longer kept in the name. Kept in the name just meaning once again that we believe, we see, we savor the goodness of who Jesus is when he's revealed. And we trust in his promises and his finished work on the cross. But rather we go back to our works and we don't believe Jesus will really come through. Jesus, there's no way you really love me. Because if you did, you would solve this problem for me. You would work out that relationship. You would make that person apologize. You would help them understand. You would meet this need. And so a a self-salvation project commences. And we begin to work and say, God, I trust you. But I'm going to leave a little bit of margin that if you don't come through, I'll save myself. My fear, my fear for each one of us is that we would just grow dull and numb to the reality of who Jesus is. Just grow dull and numb. And with life, with some of the pressures and stresses and expectations and responsibilities, it is way too easy for us just to get transactional with God. For God to become more useful than he is beautiful. God, just keep my family safe. God, just keep my kids on honor roll and out of jail. God, just keep me employed and I'll show up to church. But if you don't, then because really it's, it's not grace, it's a contract. We have a contractual, transactional relationship with God. Then God, I'm done. God, I'm gonna go be my own savior. God, I'm gonna step in and intervene once again. And Jesus is praying, he's begging, he's saying, God, these people that belong to, the, to you, these people that you have chosen, may you keep them in your name. May they not lose sight of their only hope, their only salvation, being found in who you are. And this is why we need each other, because every day, you and I, we are being conformed to become more like the world and of the world, or we are choosing to look upon and gaze upon the identity and person and work of Jesus Christ. Every day you're being discipled. Do you realize that? I mean, let's be honest. Like the clothes we're all wearing, it's not by accident. None of you just like, man, these are just the clothes I chose. Like if you were in a different part of the world, you'd be wearing something completely different. The reason you're wearing what you're wearing is because someone impressed upon you. That's what we wear here. Or the shows you watch, the foods you eat, the activities that you engaged on in are, are because other people impress them upon you a parent, a friend, a spouse, a whoever. But they're things that were impressed upon you. So every day I'm being conformed either more into the image of Jesus because I see who he is and I savor it or more into the image of the world as I become bent more to my own world and my own agenda. Be in the world and kept by glory. This is the prayer of Jesus. And really the only way that you and I go into the world And we shine the good news of the gospel as being reminded that we've been kept 
by Jesus. His third prayer, verses 17 through 19, here's what he says. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified in the truth. Okay, so often when we speak of sanctification, which if you're not a Christian, don't worry about it. It's just a big word. Like we just use this word to say, this is what it looks like for someone to become more like Jesus as they grow. In other words, just discipleship. So they're leaving behind, they're repenting of sins. We're becoming more like Jesus. We love Jesus more. Our attitudes, our actions, our character, our behaviors are becoming more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what we usually mean, right? Progressive sanctification. This is what Jesus is doing all of our lives until we see him face to face. That's what Paul calls glorification in Romans 8. But that's not the way John's using it here. That's not the way Jesus is using it here. So most of you guys probably have the ESV translation. So it does say on there, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. But those words actually are the same Greek word. It's actually, if you were to read it literally in verse 19, it would say, and for their sake, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. So that's weird. Why, why, why did our translators decide to change that? Well, here's why. Can, can Jesus be sanctified? Can, can Jesus become more like Jesus? No, Jesus cannot become more like Jesus. So if we were to read it, hey, uh, sanctify me so that I can be sanctified. It's, it's, it's a weird phrase. That's not really what it's talking about. What's really being used here is this, this notion, this idea of being set apart. Let me give you a few examples. Um, each one of us, we probably have a, a toothbrush, right? And your toothbrush that you use to brush your teeth is set apart for a very unique purpose, right? To brush your teeth. You probably would not use that same toothbrush to like clean the grout uh, a tile in your kitchen, would you? No, you'd be like, it's set apart for this one distinct purpose and function. Or think of good china. I don't know about you guys, but in your home growing up, maybe there was that china set and it was set apart, not because there was anything particularly magical about it, but it was set apart for certain occasions. It was set apart for a specific use. Or the chairs you're sitting on right now, they're set apart for the use that they're doing, which is you sitting on them. So they are sanctified, they're consecrated in a sense. What Jesus is hearkening on here is even the Old Testament system. So here's the Old Testament reality. If you were to come to church on their worship day, what would have happened is you would have also brought a sacrifice with you. So you would have brought an animal and we would have started burning the animals to atone for our sins. And so what happens when you have an altar and you burn up meat? What do you get? Barbecue, right? It's a joke. So what you really get is you get, uh, that went, I get, sorry about that. So what you really get though is you get a big pile of ash, you get a big pile of ash. So they had a shovel, a sanctified, consecrated shovel. And this shovel was only for the purpose of removing the ash. That's all it was there for. It wasn't like, hey, let's go dig a ditch later on. Let's use it to, you know, stir up some soup. It was for that one intentional purpose. Jesus is conveying to us. Jesus is wanting us to see that he's been consecrated, that he's been set apart for a very unique task, a very explicit task. He's looking forward and he sees his purpose. 33 years now, 30 of them primarily just woodworking and making tables, doing good carpentry work. And now the last three years, he's been fulfilling all of the law. You know what the law is? The law is 612 commandments in the Old Testament. 612 commandments, and Jesus has fulfilled all of them. Could you imagine what that's like for Jesus to never sin, to never mess up, and he fulfills all of the law so that you and I don't have to, so that we're freed from the law. And this is also part of his salvation work, because if Jesus just came and died, you and I would still not be totally free. First, he had to fulfill the law. He had to be an appropriate and perfect atoning sacrifice. And the only way he could be a perfect sacrifice is by fulfilling all of the law. And so Jesus comes to fulfill all the law so I don't have to and you don't have to. We're freed from the yoke of the law. And not only are we freed from the law, not only does the law go away because it's been fulfilled, yes and amen, in the work and life of Jesus, but we also get his righteousness. So you're not even just neutral with God, like, hey, my debt's paid for, but your bank account's actually full. It's full with the infinite righteousness that Jesus Christ has given you. 
And this is imputed righteousness. It's the best news of the gospel that when God looks upon you, he doesn't just say, hey, we're at square one. The bank account's at zero. He says, you have all the love, all the privileges, all the status, all the joy, all the rights. You are an heir to everything that Jesus is an heir to. Welcome to the family. And this is his purpose. This is why Jesus came. And you and I, you and I, our lives have purpose because of this very truth. And I know that can be a hard thing to feel. Often we feel like, man, I just got to get through another week. I got to get these books read for class. I've got to get these things done for work. I've got to get my kids up to school on time. And we just like, God, like it just feels like task after task after task. Here's what I'd say to you. Martin Luther, the great reformer, who often we just think of him, you know, nailing the 95 Thesis uh, to the, the Wittenberg door, or we just think about his, his incredibly insightful writings, he would say that the most holy thing, one of the most consecrated things that any of us could do was to wash the dishes. Can you imagine that? Martin Luther, the great reformer who, who speaks of the greatest truths and realities of who God is and wants us to ponder the most brilliant theology, brings us all the way down to the ordinary. And he says, even in that act, even in that act of washing the dishes, of changing the diapers, of changing the oil, of paying your bills, there's a set of purpose that only comes because you've seen who Jesus truly is. Seeing who Jesus truly is brings purpose to all areas of your life. Nothing becomes accident. Nothing becomes random. Nothing's throwaway. I was talking to someone this last week. And there was a, a tinge of regret, even in their voice, because they'd just kind of stumbled upon and, and recently been awoken to the goodness of Jesus at about the age of 55. And they just were looking at some of their life with a sense of regret. Like, God, why didn't God show up sooner? Why didn't God show me these things sooner? Why didn't I know about these things sooner? And I just stopped and I said, you know, in, in the economy of God, all of those days up to this moment are perfectly redeemed. All of those moments have significance and purpose because they led you right here to this place. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, uh, I mean, it's, 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 your, it's your fifth birthday or your 95th birthday. For those who are in Christ, all of your moments are redeemed. All of them have significance and all of them have purpose because God's been providentially at work the whole time revealing to you who Jesus truly is. This is where um, our prayer takes a little bit of a turn, starting in verse 20. And Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for us. Now, I'm not saying us like just, just you know, people in the Bible or people there. He's praying for us, Stonegate. He's praying for you. 2,000 years ago, as Jesus is just about to face the cross, he thinks to himself, he stops and says, I'm going to pray for those people in Midlothian, Texas, 2,000 years from now. You're right here in the Bible. How significant, how important, how precious are you to Jesus that if hours away from his crucifixion, he would pray for you? Does God love you? He loves you so much that he's facing a cross and he's going to pray for you. He prays for us. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, speaking of people, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So here Jesus is. He's letting us have a glimpse into the very essence and nature of God triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who, who through eternity's past have had perfect fellowship and union and relationship with each other. And he's saying just the way we have been with one another, just the way we've been united, the community that we've had with one another, we want to extend, we want to pour that out. Imagine a cup that's overflowing. God is not lacking in relationship. He is not needy and desperate, but rather there is so much love, there is so much goodness, there is so much desire for communion and union in Christ that the cup pours over onto you and I. And we get swept up into this reality that the loneliness that we often feel, the despair, the isolation, does anyone love me? Does anyone care about me? Does anyone know me? Is met with a yes and amen as we're invited into the triune fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is incredible. This is altogether life-altering. 
When we realize that our community, the way we love one another, the way we commune with one another, testifies to Jesus being revealed for who he truly is. I mean, who else could bring people like us together? Have you thought about that? When I was in high school, uh, I played a lot of sports. I played uh, basketball throughout high school, and um, <clears throat> you just end up playing with a whole bunch of different people over the years. And there was one kid on my team all the years that I played in high school named Kevin. And Kevin was just, he's just kind of annoying and, you know, just say weird things all the time. He'd get silly fouls on the court, was always yapping with the other team. Um, I, I just didn't get along with Kevin. We clashed. Our personalities didn't line up. We just didn't really fit with one another. If I saw Kevin at school, I'd not want to talk to Kevin. Uh, you know, I just, I, I didn't like Kevin. Uh, but here's the thing. If Kevin was on the court, no matter how silly his foul was, no matter how much he was yapping at the other team and probably deserved what was coming his way, I'd have his back. I was united with him in a common cause and purpose. That even though our personalities and our preferences didn't align, we were still united in a common mission and vision. How much more so should that be for the people of God? I mean, think about it. We're a really ragtag bunch of people. For 2,000 years now, God has been calling people from all different corners of the earth, from all different socioeconomic realities, from all different ethnicities, from all different languages, from all different personalities and preferences, and you name it. And he's been bringing us together as a family. Now, I mean, it might be weird. Some of us might be the crazy uncle and not know it. But if you're in the family, you're loved. You're loved by God. And God creates this unity because he's one, because God is triune and he's united. He creates unity among his people. If we see Jesus for who he is, we understand one of the things, one of the results of being a follower of Jesus is that we'd be swept up into this community, that we would truly be the people of God. We would not just go through the motions. We would not just check the box, but rather we would give ourselves away. We would give our preferences away. We'd give our positions away. We'd give our, our, our possessions away in order for us to have community. Because our community matters greatly for our sake and also for the sake of the watching world. I mean, have you ever thought about that? I mean, just the, the diversity that I often hear about, talked about in our, our culture and our community, and our world is, is often quite flimsy. There's not there much, much there to sustain it. I feel like you, you, know, you hear these conversations all the time about like diversity for diversity's sake. But here's the thing about the kingdom. The kingdom of God, the person of Jesus, when he's revealed, when he's seen, when he's understood, he creates because of his love, because of his work on the cross, because of who he is, because of his majesty, because of his power, because of his glory. He creates the ultimate group of diversity. I mean, that's what heaven is. Heaven is people from all over the world, all tribe and tongue and nation, singing together, glorifying in Jesus because of the person and work of Jesus. That's what binds us together. That's what unites us. That's what holds us together. I do want to say this, though. There's an important distinction between unity and uniformity. Unity and uniformity. Unity is, you know, we are going to have different personalities. We are going to have different preferences. We're going to have different backgrounds. We're going to have different stories. You know, we're not all going to be uniformed. We're not all going to look the same, talk the same, believe the same on every issue. That's not what it is, just like you don't in your family. But unity is we're bought by the same blood. We belong to the same family. We have the same dad. We're brothers and sisters, and we're brought together in Christ. And that unity cannot be shaken. Verse 23, and you guys have to see this, okay? This is, this is amazing. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that, so that. Another way of translating that is because. And when you see that, that's such an important thing to see in your Bible. It tells you something really important is about to come. It's a purpose statement. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Francis Schaeffer, uh, a great apologist back in the 70s and 80s, has written a, a tremendous amount of good books that you really should pick up and read any one of them. They're all tremendous. This is what Francis Schaeffer said, and he'll come up here on the screen. Let us be careful, indeed, to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. But after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave is the observable love 
of, the true, of true Christians for true Christians. The final apologetic, and we're talking Francis Schaeffer. If you know anything about him, this guy was an apologist, you know, savant. This guy loved nothing more than to argue with people, debate with people, talk about God. And I love all that too. I've lived in Seattle the last six years, and here's what you get in Seattle. You get a bunch of smart people who love to converse and have arguments and discussions about God. They'll want to talk about the cosmological argument for God, the teleological, all these arguments and proofs for the existence of God. But here's what I found, even in a place like Seattle, and I think no matter where you're at, here's what I've found is that beneath that thin veneer, when you scratch beneath it, what you often find is someone saying, what does this really look like though? I mean, when someone messes up, when someone just totally gets it wrong, when they Charlie Brown life, are you guys really gonna forgive them? You really gonna show grace? Are you really gonna encourage them? Are you really gonna love them? This final apologetic and Jesus is the one saying it, not me. He says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He's saying the way in which we love one another, the way we live out these one another's, there's 57 of them all throughout the New Testament, that we love one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, admonish one another, that we would remain with one another, that we weep with those who weep, that we rejoice with those who rejoice. As the watching world looks at that and they go, ah, okay, that's what it looks like. That is what Jesus looks like in community being revealed. When the bus pulls away, that's the aftermath of people that love Jesus. That's what it looks like. And I have found, I've found that most people, when they come in and want to have a big argument with me about who God is and do the whole logical proof thing and all that, it's usually somewhere along the way, they encountered Christian community and it really didn't live up to what they thought it would be. They felt disoriented they felt disgruntled, they felt burned, they felt let down, and they walked away going, get that, I, I hear Jesus over here, and I see that over there, and the disequilibrium sets in. How do I reconcile that? How does that really make sense? And so Jesus, seeing Jesus clearly, seeing Jesus for who he really is, is a big part of our apologetic because it creates in us a new community and who we really are. Last one, full together here. I'll be quick. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is saying, you know what? It's not enough for us just to look at Jesus and say, thanks for paying for my sins. But rather, the whole goal of the gospel, the whole point of really getting Jesus, of seeing Jesus clearly, is that he's Emmanuel, God with us. And all throughout the Old Testament, the emphasis, the push, the narrative has been moving in a direction in which God would dwell and be with his people. And Jesus is saying, I want these people to be with me. I know what we're doing. We're on a mission of restoration and salvation and redemption of this world that's going to culminate with these people being brought back home to be with me. I mean, here's what heaven is. I mean, we get these weird ideas about heaven that it's club med and a lot of easy living. But here's what heaven really is, is it's us with God. It's me getting to look at the face of Jesus and, and hug him and feel at home and know that I have a God who made me, who, who understands every last ache and part of my life and my heart. And he speaks and knows my name and he's kept me in his name and he holds me. I mean, he's praying, God, ultimately, these people are coming to be with me. And if, if that was where our passage ended, that would be enough, right? Would that be enough for you? Uh, yeah, I could go home. <laughs> amen and amen. Now, I, I don't want to oversell this, but these next two verses, I think, are some of the two most overlooked verses in the entire Bible. And they change absolutely everything. The last prayer that Jesus prays is altogether completely astounding. Verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Um. 
And so when I lived in Seattle, I'd uh, regularly go climb just some of the mountains, love getting out, uh, hiking a bit. And there was this one mountain called uh, Mount Sai. And I went out there with my brother-in-law a couple times. And Mount Sai really is just, it's three miles of just like being on a, you know, a staircase. You may as well just get on a Stairmaster and you're just doing that for three miles. Just switch back after switch back after switch back. And my brother-in-law, he runs triathlons. He's super fit. So he's like, you know, just carrying on this long conversation with big sentences. And I'm huffing and puffing and red in the face and kind of grumbling to myself and kind of hoping he trips over a rock a little bit. Just want to see him slow down. And I'm just grumbling the whole way up. And, you know, halfway up, this other guy comes by. He's a trail runner. A trail runner? Have you ever heard of such a thing? Like, it's hard enough to walk up a mountain, let alone run up a mountain. I mean, he just runs right by me, and I'm grumbling. I'm like, man, like, what's up? He's just shaming me. You know, he's just running right up the mountain as I'm huffing and puffing. And we do this for a couple hours. We're just going up and up and up, and there's not much of a payoff. We're just in this wooded forest area. We don't get a scenic view. It's just head down. You just, you know, feel like a donkey just marching along. Just, am I ever going to make it? Am I ever going to make it? And you think it's the last switchback, and you're doing this over and over and over. And a few times, it's like, ugh, I'm just going to turn back and go down. But my pride kept me going. And when I got to the top, and I lifted my head at the top of Mount Sai, a moment of just complete awe and wonder set in. Over to the left, I see Mount Rainier, which is a 14,000-foot volcano covered with glaciers. And down below me in the valley, I see Bellevue and Seattle, these cities that I'm regularly living in, and, 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 and that's where my existence happens. And I can see the terrain, and I can see a storm coming over the Olympic Mountains far off on the west horizon. And I'm watching it. And there's this sense of awe. There's this sense of wonder about, man, this, this moment just feels too grand. It feels too incredible for me to truly soak it in. I just can't take this moment in completely. Have you ever had a moment like that? Have you ever had a moment where you're like, how do I hold on to this? How do I just get more of this? How do I just capture it? And I think in some ways, that's why we take a lot of pictures. We Instagram things. We want to capture a moment that just feels altogether fleeting. Because eventually you have to go back down from the mountain. Eventually you have to go back into life. And that moment, that moment that's just like, how do I get more of this moment? You just want to hold on to it. You just want to savor it. Have you ever experienced that your ability for joy and love was too small? Have you ever experienced that? I mean, even just a couple weeks ago, we had a really nice day outside. And I was outside in my backyard just listening to some Michael Jackson songs with my girls jumping on the trampoline, eating M&Ms. And I'm just thinking, I'm like, how do I hold on to this moment? Like, how do I get more out of this moment? I feel like I have like a rag and I'm squeezing it and it's just more and more. And I just want more joy. I want to hold on to it. I want to savor it even more. Or think about when you have a good steak or a good meal and you just take that bite of steak and you're just enjoying it. You're savoring it. You're like, how do I get more enjoyment out of this? Maybe if you're vegetarian, asparagus, does that work? No, no one would ever do that with asparagus. <clears throat> you know, I was thinking this week too, like my, my iPhone, for example, it's really interesting with these, like there's, there's untold number of pixels in them. You know, they just keep putting more and more pixels into this screen. So much so now that you can't even detect the upgrade anymore. Your eye has reached its capacity for how much it can truly see these pixels. But they keep adding more and more and more. Do you know that there's more pixels on your iPhone than you can really absorb or you can really see? Why do I tell you all this? Well, once again, look at verse 26. Jesus says, I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Don't miss that. Underline that. Here's why. Jesus is saying that the very love the love that God the Father, the love that God had for Jesus is being put into you and me. Think about that. So he's not only going to give us new life, he's not only going to put us into community, he's not only going to allow us to see who God really is, but he's going to expand our capacities for joy. That the fleetingness that we feel about life, about how we want to get more joy out of another moment, will finally be maximized in God. That when I stand in heaven, I'll no longer go, can I wring out just another ounce of joy from this moment? Can I understand? Can I, can I hold on? Can I grasp this? And life is just so fleeting. The older you get, you begin to feel that more and more. 
And on the other side of eternity, there's just all the life you could ever want, not only all the life you could ever want, but the capacity to enjoy it way more than you could ever enjoy it now. That the capacity that you have to love, the capacity that you have to experience beauty is also being enhanced and upgraded to the level at which God the Father loves God the Son. That's transformative. That's everything. That what it means to become an adopted follower of Christ is that I get a new nature, I get a new heart, I get a new family, and I get to gaze and dwell upon the beauty of Christ so much so that it upgrades my capacity to get more joy out of this life and the life to come. This is Jesus' prayer for you. This is Jesus' prayer for me. And that's good news. That truly is good news. Let's pray. God, you, you intercede on our behalf. Jesus, you love us more than we could ever know, that you've bought us, that you've brought us into your family, that you care deeply about us. So much so that you would come down on a rescue mission that you would live a life that we could never live, that we would see you for who you really are as you hang upon the cross, that we would understand you're the God who holds life and death in his hands and the keys to heaven and hell as you came out of a tomb. God, may we be captivated by you. May we be entranced by you. May you go from being useful to beautiful. And as we gaze upon you, Jesus, as we see you for who you really are, as the big reveal takes place in the cross of Christ and the resurrection, God, in that moment, may we realize we have the very thing that Moses ached for. That we get to see your glory. God, as your word says in 2 Corinthians 4, that we are transformed by seeing the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So God, may all of our glory hunger be satisfied in you. May all of our souls long more deeply for you as you've made us new. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.